Well, hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles with me or open your phone. You can use it on your phone, whatever device you're using. Today, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. If you've grabbed one of the Bibles as you walked in that we provide, that's on page 978. Page 978. Today is the third sermon in this relationship series that we've called I Am Yours. A few weeks ago, Tanner preached a sermon uh, called Love Stays out of Hosea chapter 1 through 3. Last week, he preached a sermon on Love Secures in John 10. Today, here's the point that I want us to think about. I am yours and I will serve you. I am yours and I will serve you. But before we jump into unpacking Ephesians 5, let me tell you a little bit about my marriage. Some of you guys have, have spent some time with Lee and I. Some of you may not. Like, who's this guy on the stage? Lee and I, my wife Lee, I think she's, she's taking the kids to Redemption Kids right now. We met in college, freshman year in college at App State, and we actually dated our freshman year, and then I did a really dumb, stupid thing, and uh, and I told her I just wanted to be friends. Man, that was a horrible cop-out. And, uh, and so we dated for like a month. And then it, it, was, it was a mutual, agreeable. There was no hostility. Um, she might have had some internal hostility. Um, but uh, we, we continued to, to interact with each other through a ministry called Crew and through a local church. Um, but for the most part, didn't date for the next few years. But graciously, she gave me a second chance. And so when I came to my senses and realized such a dumb mistake that I had made and I came back to her and by God's just sovereign provision, here, here's kind of how the second time around went. It was the end of our junior year and we had, we had both uh, decided to spend the summer serving with crew in South Asia. And so uh, we were with some others from our school serving overseas and, uh, and so on this project and I'm like, what mistake did I make? Like, this is the girl that I need to ask to be mine. And, um, and so, I, I guess you could say we were like a maid in China. We started dating the second, yeah, I like, thank you for the laugh over there. Uh, might be the last one I get today, but that's okay. Um, we, we started dating in China, and, um, and, and our relationship, I would say, started off really, uh, in a lot of ways, how Tim Keller... In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says most marriages in Western culture start. He says this. He says, you get married because you feel an attraction to the other person. You think he or she is wonderful. And let me tell you about Lee. She is wonderful. I love my wife, both inside and out, head to toe. Like, okay, I won't go too far down that track, but I love my wife. Like we, I, I was attracted to her, and I just enjoyed being with her. I mean, I could look in her eyes. She was always upbeat, smiling. Like this is a person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And and by God's grace, we've now been married 15 years, one month, and 21 days. It's just the beginning. Um, but but Keller continues on, and he says. But a year or two after marriage, sometimes even as early as the honeymoon, he says three things happen. The first one is this. You begin to find out 
how selfish this wonderful person is. Second, your spouse discovers that you, the wonderful person that you are, and how selfish you are. And then third, he says this, though you acknowledge it in part, you conclude that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than your own. Anybody relate? I can picture the day that my selfishness was exposed in our marriage. Now, Lee can probably picture many days before this day. But there's one in particular that stands out to me. We had been married a few months. I was at seminary um, studying full-time with a little part-time internship in a church. And Lee um, was teaching first grade. And I'm really grateful for that season. But, but what, what I envision. And I don't know the exact day that it was. It was a few months, maybe the first month into our marriage. I, re, I, I can picture now I'm sitting on the couch. And Lee asked me to get her something from the kitchen. And I don't know if I explicitly said this. I definitely know I thought it. And this was the thought. You can get it yourself. Yeah. That was bad. Anybody been there? You see, it didn't take me long to realize that marriage revealed a lot of the junk in my life. That I was a sinner and that I was also married to a sinner. And, I, and now I'm, I'm preaching a sermon called Love Serves. You see, for many of us, we think of marriage as getting into something, this wonderful person that we're attracted to, and, uh, and if we're honest, in a lot of ways, maybe what they can do for us, or what they're going to provide for us. But what you realize early on is that there are many barriers to living that out. So here's the deal. Marriage isn't easy. It is wicked hard. But what I'm here to tell you today is that it is possible as we follow the pattern that God gives us and we walk in the power that he supplies, that marriage can be a very redemptive thing in your life and in your spouse's life. And so the passage that I get to share with you today, this is probably maybe one of the most influential in my life has shaped my thinking about marriage, and, and I want to invite you into it with me today. And so as we look at Ephesians, we're going to look at Ephesians 5, through 33, but let me just set the stage here for you briefly about the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Many break the book down into two main sections. The first three chapters, they would say these are, these are the indicative, these are the doctrinal gospel truths this is, these are the things that are true about God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And then the last half, starting in chapter 4, these are the imperatives. These are the commands. This is how you are to live a life flowing from these true things. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. I'm just going to briefly bring us up to speed with chapter 5. In chapter 4, verse 1, you see this transition where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let me just hit pause. What he's assuming here is chapter 2. In chapter 2, here's what Paul says. You, including me and all of us, were dead in our sins. We were separated from God. We were destined for a life and an eternity of wrath, bearing the judgment of God on our sins. But God, being rich in love, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, by grace you have been saved. He sent Jesus to pay the penalty that you and I deserved. And at the end of that section in chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, you are now God's workmanship, recreated. You're a new creation. You're created in Christ to walk in good works. And now he comes back to that in chapter 4, and he says, I therefore urge you, in view of the calling, this, this gospel calling, and a lot of what God's done, forgiving you your sin, making you a new creature, you're to live a different way. You're to live worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what he does in the last half of Ephesians is he just walks in a lot of different areas and he talks about what does this look like to walk worthy of the calling. He talks about not walking like the Gentiles. He talks about walking in love, chapter 5, verse 2. He talks about walking as children of the light, chapter 5, verse 8. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, he talks about walking in wisdom. That's where I want to pick up today, chapter 5. Beginning in verse 15, this is what the Word of God says. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So walk in wisdom. And in particularly what it looks like to walk in wisdom is you walk filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that is in us, that is changing us and transforming us, and we're walking in the energy that He provides. And as we do that, He says, your life then becomes an overflow. You're singing, you're giving thanks, you're, you're living out the power of we, we've been talking about, this community, and then in verse 20 says, 21 says, even submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the setting where we pick up in verse 22. Verse 22, Paul is assuming believers who've heard the good news of Jesus, they've responded. They're saying, hey, we want to walk worthy of the calling. We want to walk in wisdom. And so he's, okay, you're walking full of the Spirit. This is what that looks like in particular in your marriage. And so in verse 22, this is what Paul says. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Look, before you write me off, I know we live in a culture that, that wants to do away with any distinction. I'm here sharing with you, not John Chastain. My role is to take us to the scriptures God's given to us. And for him to grant us wisdom for us to understand what does marriage look like for the glory of God. So before you write me off, as you hear these words, wives submit to your husbands or husbands love your wives. Before we even go there, I want you to wrestle with a truth with me that I believe is going to shape my life. And that at minimum, you, you may, right now, you may be like, John, I'm ready to walk out because I don't, these are the last words I want to hear. But I would say at minimum that, that you would say, hey, God, would you give me a humility just to hear your word today? And would you shape my thinking, not by culture, but would you shape my mind and thinking through the word of God? Now, here's where I want to start today. I'm going to briefly unpack what's happening, and then I really want to linger in at verse 32 for a while. The structure here is pretty clear. He spends 22 through 24 talking about wives. Then there's a section 25 and following that he's addressing husbands. And interweave throughout this, you have this strange Christ-church analogy. So look back at 22 to 24. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the church, head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. What we see here is there's a picture that Paul's pointing to. And he, he's saying, look to Christ and look to the church. And what he tells us here is he says, Christ is head of the church. And as he's talking about this marriage analogy, he's equating husbands with the way Christ loves the church, and he's equating with wives and how the church submits to Christ. And he makes that explicit here in verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit everything to their husbands. The wives follow the cue in the way the church submits to Christ. And then in verse 25, he twists it around, and he, he addresses husbands, but he's still using the same analogy. And instead of saying husbands, Look at the church. He says, husbands, look to Christ. He says, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then what he does is he unpacks what does it look like? How did Christ love the church? And this is what he says. Here's how Jesus loved the church. 
First of all, he gave himself up. He laid down his life. He died for the church with the goal, with the purpose that he might sanctify her. Hey, here's the deal, and I mentioned it already. We were created to know and love and worship God and live with him forever. What happened in Genesis 3 is what's called the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They wanted to become their own God, and as a result, they didn't only sin. Sin is like a virus, and it spread and infected our whole world and every person. So I stand here, even as a pastor, a sinner who's just been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of God sending Jesus is to solve the problem of that separation. It's so that man, that, that, that men and women might be brought back to God to live with and enjoy his presence forever. That's what he's saying here. He died for that very thing. That he might, the word sanctify means to make holy, to set apart, that he might purify us. And he explains that. He goes on. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without wrinkle or or spot or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus did. He gave up his life so that you might be presented holy. You see, one day when Jesus returns and we go give account before God, I'm not going to stand there and say, hey, God, look at all the great things I've done. I'm going to stand there a wicked sinner, ashamed of a ton of stuff, and I'm just going to be saying, I don't belong to live with you forever, except you sent your son, and he's paid for everything. I'm holy and without blemish because of the work of Christ. That's the love of Christ on display. Paul is unpacking that. And then he returns in verse 28. He says, so in the same way, husbands, you should love your wife as your own body. He starts alluding here, actually he's already alluded to it, this idea of of the body. He says, you're to love your wife as your own body because he who loves his wife Loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here's the deal. Paul's assuming a knowledge that he's about to make explicit. Let's talk about Christ in the church. Christ is the head of the church. Who's the body of Christ? All right, I'm going to ask you again. It's okay to talk back to me. Christ is the head of the church, who's the body of Christ? The church is. So Christ is the head. The church is the body. He's using that analogy, and he's now saying, husbands and wives, you are no longer two. You are one. And that's why he quotes in chapter, in verse 31, Genesis 2.24. Verse 31 is a quote from the very beginning, Genesis 2.24, and he says this, Therefore... As a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Here's the point. If you don't, when you get married, you're no longer two, you're one. So if you don't nourish and cherish and love your wife, you know what you're doing? You're hating yourself. When you you get married, it's no longer yours and mine, it's ours. We are one. 
And then Paul continues in verse 32, and this is where I want to linger for a little bit. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is a mystery? In this case, here's what this mystery is. A mystery is something that was hidden. In this case, it was hidden in the Old Testament, but that has now been revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and explicitly right here in Ephesians chapter 5. You guys with me? So a mystery, something hidden that has now been revealed. What was hidden that has now been revealed? And this is what has just completely changed and shaped how I think about marriage. It's this, and I'll quote Jeffrey Bromley. He says this, here's the mystery. As God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. I'm going to linger because this is what needs to sink in. And I'm going to flesh out some implications of this. Let me say this more clearly. The mystery is that marriage was created as a tangible, invisible picture of Christ in the church. Now, in case that hasn't rocked you a little bit, let me flesh that out. I'm going to give you a few implications of that. And the first one is this. The ultimate meaning of marriage is to display the glory of God. Our secular culture is saying, man, marriage is everything but that. It's, it's, it's for you. It's your pleasure. It's what it can bring you. But ultimately what we see here is that it's to display the glory of God. In particular, it is a very tangible and real image. Lee and my, our marriage, just to, to use an example, is supposed to be a picture that others can look at it and see, look at the love that Christ has for the church. Every day, my marriage is a, is a drama. It is a story. It is a, is a movie that's supposed to be showing that. So if you're married, this is why you're married. If you're single, my single folks, this should be the hope one day. If you, if you want to be married... This should be your hope, to display the glory of God. Second implication is this. Marriage is not an afterthought. Marriage isn't an afterthought. Get this, when we go all the way back, and if you were to just wrestle with this question, why marriage? Like, why can't we just, like, have relationships and, you know, whatever you want, but, like, why this thing called marriage, this, this covenant marriage? Here's, a, here's Paul's answer. He's saying in Genesis chapter 2, when we see this first marriage between Adam and Eve, God already knew the redemptive plan 
that was going to unveil, that he was going to redeem the world through sending his son. And he creates marriage with that in mind. Paul isn't right now saying, what can I, let, let me find an example that I can like show. Oh, oh yeah, Christ in the church, oh, that's a good one. That, that's marriage. No, it's the other way around. Christ in the church was first. And Paul says, and God's saying, I'm going to create marriage because I know what I'm going to do. And it's going to be a visible picture of my love for the church. Marriage is not an afterthought. It was designed. It belongs to God. It's the design of God. And it's to display the glory of God. Third, did you realize that there's no human marriage after death? Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to go there. I'll give you the reference. You can go look it up. It's Matthew 22:30. It's Mark 12:25. We will not be given to marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you know why? Marriage is a shadow. When I spend eternity with Jesus, that's the reality. The shadow gives way to the reality. I'm going to be married in the new heavens and the new earth because I am the bride of Christ. Do you get that? That is where we're headed. And now, with that in mind, I step back, and it helps me to think rightly about marriage now. Marriage is not the end goal of life. Let me flesh out a few implications this truth should guard us from idolizing marriage and the gifts of marriage. Second, romance, sexual intimacy, and children are all temporary. Like, why do you want to get married? Man, I long, like, a romantic relationship. I, I long for sexual intimacy. I long to, to have kids. They're all temporary, and they aren't even guaranteed in this life, and they're not a part of the next. You're like, John, I thought this sermon was on love search. Hang in there. We're going to get there. What does that mean? Marriage to Jesus should be our ultimate pursuit. Marriage to Jesus is our ultimate pursuit. So singles, hear me in this. Because I think sometimes singles are taught like, well, you're not married. Well, like, what's wrong with you? You being single have a unique way to display the glory of God by showing through your singleness that marriage to Christ is ultimate in a way that a married couple can't. Marriage is temporary. Relationship to Jesus is ultimate. Relationships in Christ are more permanent than relationships in families. And one other implication. If marriage is about displaying the glory of God, it's not an afterthought, and there's no human marriage after death. Marriage is not mainly about staying in love, but about keeping covenant love. My marriage is about treating my wife in such a way that it shows the world who God is. 
when you get that, that will, that will shape every day of your marriage. So what does this practically look like? How do we practically display the gospel and the glory of God in marriage? The first truth I want to share with you as we imitate the power of the gospel is this. We serve selflessly. We serve selflessly. Think about this. Before I jump into unpacking wives and husbands, first of all, I want you to see a husband and a wife, ideally, are are two followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ, stepping into a marriage. So as we think about, like, even in our own lives, what does it look like to glorify God, to, to live in such a way that people see who God is? Let me just give you a few verses here. In Galatians 5, this is what Paul says. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You see that? Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to be married or if you're married, you know who your closest neighbor is? It's your spouse. And so like taking this framework that through love, I am going to, as a follower of Jesus, look to serve my spouse. So what does that look like? Then I think we start taking our cues from Jesus who we're following. Here's, what he, he, here's the model that he gave in, um, in Mark 10, 45. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Husbands and wives, as you take this attitude of serving selflessly, it is to come into marriage to say, I'm not here for you to serve me and meet my needs. I'm here to show the world what my Savior's like, and I'm going to lay down my life constantly and daily to serve you. Love serves. And this shouldn't surprise us. We go to the, some of the more explicit passages in the Bible on love. Here's one, 1 Corinthians 13, 3 through 5. Love is, verses 4 through 5, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love serves. So this past week, I've been sifting through like as many marriage books that I can just, like, I just want to be filled thinking about what does it look like to love sir. I want to give you some just definitions that I've come across in some of these books. In one book by Tim Chester on marriage, he says this, the flip side of love is self-denial. Love is putting someone else before myself, their interests, their wishes, their needs, their comfort. Let me give you another. Paul Tripp, in his book on marriage, says this, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Let's linger on that. It's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of the other person. And notice this. What does he say? 
It's not contingent upon what? It's not contingent upon them loving me that way in return. And it's not contingent upon them deserving my love. You know where that definition comes from? It comes from the gospel. Let me ask you this. How does Jesus love us? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, what's it say? Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died. Jesus did not die. Oh, that John Chastain guy, he's deserving of my love. I'll lay my life down. No. We go back to Ephesians 2. You were dead in sin. I'm I'm rebelling against God, deserving the wrath of God. And God says, I'm going to send my son for that guy, for that girl. That's love. That's what we mean when we say the unconditional love of God. There is no condition by which I could deserve or receive his love. If you're here today and like this whole Jesus or gospel thing is new, at the very heart of it is this. You can do nothing to earn or deserve the love of God. You just respond to it. So when I respond to Jesus, it's not... Well, Jesus is saving me because of all the good things I bring to the table. No, it's there's nothing I bring to the table. I'm responding. Look at the extravagant nature. You're loving me, and there's nothing I can do to give you in return. Go imitate that in your marriage. Paul Tripp, he continues in his book, and there's a lot of these. I wish I could share. You know, I'm going to pick out a couple, but... I don't have them on the screen, but I want you to listen clearly. He, he fleshes out, like, what does this practically look like to serve in marriage? Listen to a few of these. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of your husband or wife without impatience or anger. Do you see the qualifications on the end? Hey, oftentimes we want to serve, but we're going to serve it with a poor attitude. We're going to serve it, and we're going to be bitter, or we're going to be angry. That's not service that displays the glory of God. That's service that shows your selfishness. Another one. Love is being a good student of your spouse, looking for his or her physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some ways you can remove the burden. Support him or her as he carries it or encourages him or her along the way. What about this? Love doesn't wait to be told what to do. Love never sees her needs as an interruption. Love is burdened when she is burdened and finds joy in her relief. If you really love your husband or wife, you will be willing to increase your load in order to lighten his or her load. You guys see this road I'm heading down? When we do that, it is showing to the world. And look, we're not doing this to show the world in a very arrogant way. Like, I'm not Jesus. But when I love that way, it shows the power of the gospel in me. Because John Chastain in and of himself does not want to do that. I want to sit on the couch and say, you can go get it yourself. Lee, I think you might have missed that one. But um, I'll tell you about it later. That's what I really want to do. But when Christ 
when I yield my life to Christ, and the, when I'm filled with the Spirit, it overflows with a life of love and service. So we serve selflessly. Second, we serve distinctively. As we reflect on this mystery, one of the things that becomes clear is that the husband, that the roles of husband and wife are not arbitrarily assigned, rather they're patterned after Christ in the church. Now, oftentimes as I interact with people um, about like gender roles in the Bible, so that was the culture then. Well, let me ask you this, like what is, what's the pattern being held up here? Paul's not saying, look at the culture at Ephesus. This is what husband and wives do. He's saying, look to the, the God, the creator God. And, and he's drawing out roles for, for husbands and wives after that, which wasn't an afterthought. So when I talk about serving distinctively, this is really a way to to display the Trinitarian God. I'll give you a quick sidebar here. And this has really helped me in thinking about how I understand why, like, are there male and female and, and how this all interact. I look at the Trinity. How many gods are there? Let me ask you again. How many gods are there? There's one God. How many persons? Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to do a little just theology test here because here's what we're learning. Our theology, in a lot of ways, determines the quality of our marriage because what you believe about God is how you love and serve your spouse. The Father is fully God, correct or not? Yes. The Son is fully God. Yes. The Spirit is fully God. Yes. Is the Father equal? Is the Father the Son? No, is the Son the Spirit? No, here's how we define it. There are, there's one God, there's three persons. They are equal, in essence, distinctive in their roles. I'll flesh it out a little bit. Jesus can say in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. We are equal in essence. And yet later on in the Gospel of John, he can say the Father is greater than I. How can Jesus do that? Is he greater in terms of like being or essence? No, he's greater in terms of the role. The Father plans, the Son carries out, and the Spirit applies. And I would say God, if you were to go back to read Genesis 1 and 2, he says, I'm creating man in my own image. We are husband and wife, male and female, to reflect the triune God. And so when I look at like husbands and wives have different roles, here's what I'm saying and here's what I'm not saying. I am saying they are both equal in essence in the same way that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully God. But they are distinct in their roles. So as we flesh this out, let me give you one other just helpful nugget as we think about this. Sin did not create gender roles. 
it distorted them. And so what we have here in Ephesians is Paul saying, this is what the goodness of the gospel does. It even redeems marriage from the ways that sin has distorted it. I'll give you a few examples here. And since the the relationship, the pattern here is Christ and the church, it, uh, it helps us to avoid errors. Husbands have no right to control. Listen up to me. Husbands have no right to control, abuse, or neglect their spouses. You know why? Christ would never do that. And if that happens, as the church, we ought to speak against it and hold those people accountable. Amen? At the same time, submission is not slavish or coerced. You know why? Is that the way Jesus wants you to interact with him? How do you interact with Jesus? He woos you, and you willingly and freely respond, and you worship, and you follow, and you submit, and there is great joy and delight in that. Amen? That's what he's saying is this picture. So whatever we talk about, when we talk about husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and wives submit, it's the picture of Christ in the church that's our model, and it helps us against error. Now let me give you a couple definitions, and I'm just going to be up front. It's already 1129, and so I'm not going to answer all of your questions. I want, to, I want to get some stuff out there, and you know what? This is the good part of groups at Redemption Hill. You know, you can go check out Denim's group this week, and he'll just clarify all the things that I messed up um, and answer all of your questions, okay? Um, but this, the goal, this isn't the end of the conversation. The power of we is let's continue this and let's grow in understanding this. So Piper, another book that I've been reflecting, he's got a book called The Moment, This Momentary Marriage. He gives this definition. He says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection and provision in the home. Where does he get that from? He's just looking at, at the text here. Husbands, love your wives. He's saying, and then reflect on this. He says, um, as Christ is the head of the church, the church submits to Christ also. Wives should submit everything to their husband. And and the husband leads. The husband, in one way, it describes the husband as a leader. He is a servant leader. He's leading in a way that he lays down his life. And notice what he says here. He says he takes the primary responsibility, which I like. He's not saying it's the sole responsibility, but but a leader's going to lead, and he's going to lead modeling after Christ. He's going to lay down his life, and what does that practically look like? We see the way Christ does for us. He protects us. He provides for us. He nourishes, and he cherishes. Husbands, go do that with your wife. You are to lead in a way, like a John 13 kind of lead, where Jesus gets down, and he washes his disciples' feet, his disciples' feet, and he says, No servant, no master is above his servant. Go and do likewise. 
So you want to serve your spouse and love her the way Christ does? You serve her. You get dirty. You lay down your life, and you do it again and again and again. That's leadership. And if you want to talk about protection and provision, I would say it includes both physical and spiritual. Physical protection, physical provision, spiritual protection, spiritual provision. Men, go lead the way Christ leads. And then Piper gives this definition on submission. He says this, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. I'll clarify a few things. First of all, your husband isn't Jesus. Okay? So know this. He's still growing to become like Jesus. Pray for him. He needs transformation. I need transformation. Second, your allegiance is first to Jesus. That's what he's, verse 22, wives submit your own husbands as to the Lord. Or verse 21, submitting one another out of reverence for Christ. Our initial submission is to Jesus. And so I'm never going to, you should never follow your husband into a pathway of sin because Jesus would never do that. He doesn't cause church to do that. And then I think this may be helpful. Submission is a disposition and an inclination to follow your husband's lead. Why do I say a disposition and an inclination? I'll be honest, there's been some times where I haven't led well in our family. What is my wife to do? You want to see your husband transformed by the gospel. Does that mean you just overlook and never address like some of the things that are going on in your marriage? Now, here's what Piper would say. He, he would say, wives, you can't demand your husbands to lead. Because if you demand it, how does he lead then? He's just following. He says this, but you can have a disposition and an inclination that says this, I gladly enjoy and delight to follow your leadership in the home. But these are some areas where I'm really struggling. Would you pray and consider about what it might look like to grow in leadership in these areas? That's coming with with no strings attached, not a demanding, not a you do this or that. It's an inclination and a disposition. You want to follow. And husbands, hear your wives as they pray and plead with you. Like, let's lead and let's lead courageously. Now, I know my time's running out. Does anybody feel overwhelmed with this? I do. I know oftentimes we like highlight like this, wives submit to your husbands as if, man, how dare he say that? Let me ask you this. He says, husbands, love your wife the way Christ loves the church. That is stinking hard. Like I hear this over and over, and I'm like, how am I able to do this? I see my sin and my selfishness often on display. And so that's why I want to end with this. The final truth is to serve walking in the power of the gospel. If you are really going to cultivate a servant's heart in your marriage, 
there are a few crucial things you've got to do. The first one is this. Everybody listening? The biggest problem in your marriage is not your spouse. It's you. If, I, if, if you come to me and we go through premarital counseling, one of the books that I'm going to use is a book by Dave Harvey called When Sinners Say I Do. And what he's going to argue is that we often say, man, I'm having marriage problems. He says, no, you're not. You can't have marriage problems. Like marriage is just like what you call it. What you're having is two people who are sinners and y'all are having problems. But you're like, you can't say the marriage is having problems. And he's going to say, you will not fix your marriage until you take your finger and point it in yourself and say, I am the biggest problem in my marriage. Because here's the deal. You can't change your spouse. But you have complete control over yourself. And so, Keller, I started with that analogy. Like, Keller, Keller says, here's how most people enter into marriage. They, like, there's an attraction, and then he says, you know, here's what happens after two or three years. They realize their selfishness and that it's not their selfishness, it's their spouse's selfishness. We continues on. He says, you basically have three paths. He says, the first path is this. Both of you dig your heels in the ground and basically demand that your spouse serve and meet your selfishness. And now imagine, he says, both of you are doing this. He's like, so it's going to fail. And so what happens, he says, there's an emotional distance that you grow apart. And eventually, you both agree to say, we're not going to talk about these things in our marriage. I'm not going to point those things out. You're not going to point these things out. You call a truce, truce. And he says, that marriage may last 40 years. But he says on the anniversary picture, the kiss, it's not real. It's ice cold in the marriage. He says, but there's a second path. And he says, the second path is this. He says, it's when two couples agree that their own selfishness is the biggest problem in their marriage. And they are going to commit willingly to change. He says, if two people will do that, I'll share the quote. I think I got on the screen. If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage. You have the prospect of a truly great marriage. He even says this, if one of you will commit to this, there's a good chance. Because why even one person? He says, think about the gospel. He's like, what does Christ do? Christ, it's not a... We're not both like drawn to love Christ, right? It's him. He takes the decisive initiation. He lays down his life. He woos me. And it's the love of God in Christ that swells up within me to confess my sin and draw near to him. And he says, you can have that same transforming power on your spouse. So you may be here today and your spouse may not be here. Here's what I want to call you to do. Not point the finger at your spouse. You draw the circle around yourself, and will you commit to ongoing willingness to change? The second thing is this. Once you commit to change, the good news of the gospel is that there's forgiveness and hope. And so you come to Jesus 
turning from your sin, believing in what we just skimmed over in Ephesians 2, that God loved you and sent Jesus to lay down his life to save you, to forgive you of your sin, to put his Holy Spirit in you. Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit. That's what you need. So you come in repentance and faith, and then you have your soul satisfied in Jesus. Keller continues on in this analogy, and he says this. He says, we come into our marriages driven by all kinds of fears, desires, and needs. If I look to my marriage to fill the God-sized spiritual vacuum in my heart, I will not be in position to serve my spouse. Only God can fill a God-sized hole. Until God has the proper place in my life, I will always be complaining that my spouse is not loving me well enough, not respecting me enough, not supporting me enough. So here's the news for you singles and for us as married. Until your soul is satisfied in Jesus, you will have a really hard time saying, I am yours, I will serve you. And singles, thinking that going into marriage is going to fill this huge vacuum, it's a lie. What you need is the glory of God in Jesus to fill the vacuum so that you can properly love and serve your spouse as a way that displays the glory of God. And then finally, you must make knowing and walking with Jesus through the power of the Spirit your greatest aim. I want to go and invite the band up here. Dan, you guys come on up. As they come up, think about this. I know I've mentioned a lot of books today, but what you need is not a marriage book. What you need is a grander vision of the glory of God. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The more intimately you get to know Jesus, the more glory that's going to be displayed in your marriage. But let me tell you this. Serving isn't easy. Marriage isn't easy. But when we live this way, full of the Spirit, and the power of the gospel, there is joy beyond imagine, even in the midst of suffering and sacrifice. That's really hard. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to sing a song that's called I Surrender All. As we think about loving the way Christ loves, the invitation today is will you just surrender to say, I'm the biggest problem God, would you work in me and help me by the power of your spirit to display the glory of God as I love and serve my spouse. Let me pray for us. Father, would you enlarge our vision of your glory? We, we have thoughts that are too shallow of you God, I often see my selfishness on display. And so I need more of you in me so that I can serve my spouse. God, God, my prayer is that Medford would increasingly see pictures of the glory of God through marriages where husbands and wives lay down their lives to radically serve each other. 
God, help us to do this. Would you give us joy in doing this as we wait for you to return? The marriage feast, the the wedding that's to come. God, we want to be with you. We are yours. And yet until that day comes, we will serve and point to that day. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.